Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. Yeah, another weekend over and not a guard in the house vaccinated. Aren't we a great little country? So we are. Not to mind. Ah, not to mind. All the things we were told not to do about mandatory quarantine. And I will remind you a little later on of all the things we were told not to do. Sure, haven't we done them? They're leaving them out for smoke breaks and they don't bother coming back. Honest to the love of God, there are people missing now from the Crown Plaza. Not to mind the whingers giving out about being in a four-star hotel. It's a flipping Crown Plaza for pity's sake. So we have a half-baked, half-finished, half-arsed quarantine system. They're already complaining and they're already walking out. More of that as we go through the morning. Also, the corkman who predicted what's currently happening in the Suez Canal. Now, mercifully, they seem to have shifted or be in the process of shifting the Ever Given, which has been rammed there. Uh, A bit like trying to turn... Imagine trying to turn an articulated truck in the middle of the Jack Lynch Tunnel. Well, that was kind of what happened. It got rammed against the two sides of the Suez Canal. It's been blocking shipping for over a week now. The good news is they seem to have gotten it shifted this morning. They're moving it on the tide. They're not quite certain yet. Are they done? But it's looking good. But later on this morning, I'll talk to the corkman who predicted that this was going to happen. And we'll talk to him about, you know, the implications of this. Because the stuff that you bought from Wish.com that you might get in, in, in the middle of May, you might not now get it until September. But it's far more serious than that. That's also coming up this morning. Plus more people waiting for vaccines. Not just the guards, but look, there's not a guard in the house vaccinated yet. And a man who lost his job a number of weeks ago and is now living in his car. That is all to come on the opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. 1850 the number to call, the text or WhatsApp 083 396 and the email opinion at 96fm.ie. But we begin this morning back in March of 2013 and in West Cork where an unspeakable family tragedy unfolded on a small beach near Ballydehob, a little beach called Audley Cove. Martin McCarthy, a local farmer, and his three-year-old daughter were drowned there on Tuesday night, the 6th of March. It was a story that shocked the nation. Now, to remind you of what happened, I've put together... Uh, a brief montage from the 96FM News Archive. It was my old job as senior news reporter and I covered that story over those few harrowing days in March of 2013. The alarm was raised around 11 o'clock last night. A man in his 50s and his three-year-old daughter were reported missing from their home, a farm at a place called Foyle Le Muck near Ballydehob. A search operation was launched and there was no... The man who died has been named as Martin McCarthy, aged 50, of Foyle-Namuk, Ballydehob. The little girl was his three-year-old daughter, Clarissa. 
Martin's wife and Clarissa's distraught mum, Rebecca, is being comforted by relatives. She raised the alarm last night when she discovered her husband and daughter were missing from their home. Gardaí first searched the family farm before switching their attention to Audley Cove, a small beach nearby, also calling in the Coast Guard. We never know what goes on in a person's head. If we did, maybe we wouldn't be here. Maybe. The opening line of a homily by Father Alan O'Leary, chief celebrant at Requiem Mass in St Mary's Church in Skull for Martin and Clarissa McCarthy. The small church was filled to capacity as mourners came from across West Cork and beyond. Rebecca, Martin's wife and Clarissa's mother, visibly distraught, was supported by friends and family during the Mass. In a display of immense strength and courage, however, she took part in the ceremony, leading the responsorial psalm, The Lord is My Shepherd. Following Mass, Martin McCarthy and the little girl to which people said this week he was utterly devoted were laid to rest in a single coffin in the local cemetery. That's the story from 2013 musical accompaniment there is called Spiegel im Spiegel by Arvo Part. We know now, of course, that the, the truth was far darker than we thought. Martin McCarthy had planned his daughter's murder and his own suicide after his young American wife told him that she wanted a divorce. In recent years, I was introduced to a Cork woman who had been and to this day remains a close friend of Rebecca Saunders, Clarissa's mom. She told me that one day the full story would emerge. And that story is now the subject of a new podcast and a major feature published in the Irish Examiner over the weekend, written and compiled by journalist Liz Dunphy. The podcast is called Clarissa, A Life Stolen. It's just under an hour long. It's available now on all the usual platforms. Rebecca Saunders now lives in Texas. And last evening, I had an opportunity to speak to her for the opinion line. Rebecca, thank you for being with me today. I guess we'll start by just asking you about Clarissa. There's some audio in the podcast of her. Um, she sounded like a lovely, bright, funny little kid. She was full of excitement, full of vivaciousness. Um, from the moment that she could talk, she really never stopped. And if she would meet anybody in the street, whether that would be you, whether that would be a woman, another child, she would go up to you and she'd want to ask you your name. She would tell you her name. She would want to know everything about you. She was very, very outgoing from a very young age. And was your marriage troubled before she was born or did it start afterwards? It pretty much started, um, I would say, cracks began to show maybe six months after we got married. Um, Martin engaged in some... uh, legal battles with neighbors of his uh, that I had known previously. And he just became obsessed with it. And it just, it really ate him up. It was for him, it was all about work. It was all about his legal case. And I just felt that I just somehow was forgotten about. Um, So I am... I got to the stage where, you know, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. I had never seen a cow before. Um, and 
I thought farming was romantic. And then I got to West Cork and a few months, few couple of years passed by. And I realized that farming is quite a life sentence. You know, it is, it is a lifestyle and you have to love it because if you don't, you are just, you're wasting your time and you're setting yourself up to be miserable. And uh, when I told Martin that farming wasn't for me, that it was just too much for me, um, I feel like he almost saw me as his enemy from right then. You know, I, I was kind of in a way telling him that I, I didn't like farming. And so I think he kind of took it as I didn't like him. And you never discussed that when you were just seeing each other. It was just after your marriage that you began to have these conversations. Well, we spent a year apart. We spent a year in a long distance relationship yeah. because I had gone back to the States. I had finished high school and then, um, and then I had come back to West Cork in uh, November of 2005. And then we ended up getting married the following July. On the night that this terrible tragedy happened, you had decided the time had come to look into ending your marriage and you were going to see someone at a free legal aid in Bantry. You had obviously told Martin you were going to go to dinner with a friend. Do you think he knew that you were looking for a divorce or had you discussed it previously? We discussed it previously. I had told him uh, months before if, uh, if he still continued to pursue his legal cases that were still ongoing that I didn't want to raise Clarissa this way, that I didn't want to be in a family with this kind of desperation over our heads. So he knew he just still wanted to pursue his legal cases. Um, and it got to the point where he was just being deceitful towards me, keeping things from me. Um, and I ended up trying to apply for legal aid because at that stage I had no funds of my own, really. I couldn't afford a lawyer. Um, I couldn't afford to begin any kind of divorce mediation or proceedings. So I think I had told him um, as early as December of 2012 that I was done and I wanted a divorce. How did he respond to that? He, he pretty much said no. I think that those were his verbatim words after I told him that. And then um, he panicked. He rang his sister and uh, his sister ended up convincing me to go back to marriage counseling. We had been previously about a year and a half after we'd first gotten married. Um, I just he had asked for marriage counseling after I told him that I wanted a divorce and that I, I knew that I wanted a divorce, but I just felt like, I just felt like it wasn't going to get us anywhere because I don't think that there was any, there was no, um, how do I put this? There was no question in his mind that he was going to drop his legal cases. 
And that was what I wanted. They were consuming his life and therefore they were consuming your relationship as well. Absolutely. It was, it was either work or legal matters. And it just got to the point where he had no time for myself. He had no time for Clarissa. Um, he would lock himself in the parlor for hours on end with his legal cases, or he would be out working. And he just, he became extremely angry and bitter, extremely just frustrated with everything. And it was really sad to see Clarissa have to, you know, witness her father in, in the capacity that she could um, witness him just withdraw into himself. What kind of a relationship did they have, Rebecca? Did, I mean, you say in the podcast that in his own way, he he loved her. I think he, he did love her. I think that he loved her as best he could. Um, Do you think he still loved you at that stage? I think it depends on what your definition of love is. I think that I think that he loved me like he loved his cows and his dogs. So he loved me because he thought that I was his. I don't think that that's, I don't think that his actions speak to the kind of love that you can have for a person in their own, in their own individual way with their own sacred rights Mm. of being able to choose how their life unfolds. He didn't see me as a person. Certainly the hopes and dreams that you had as you left America to come to Ireland to marry this man, they, they were not fulfilled. No, I don't think so. I, I think that there was a lot of, uh, a lot of promises that weren't held up and a lot of just expectations that either if they were voiced, they weren't fulfilled or, you know, things, other things got in the way. Let's go to that horrible night on the beach at, at Audley Cove. It was a beach that you and Clarissa loved to go and play on. Mm-hmm. We would go there almost every, I mean, every day in the summer, we would always go there. And it was now the scene of your worst unthinkable nightmare. <sighs> yeah, I am. Um, I have many, many pictures of Clarissa and I'm very fortunate that I, I took so many. And there's many, many pictures of her at that beach. <sighs> and it's always... It's always hard to look at them because she loved that beach so much. And that is where she spent her last moments. You go into great detail about your memories of of that night and those terrible, terrible hours. They're etched forever in your mind, I suspect. Absolutely. Um, I think that when somebody goes through a trauma like I've been through, like all the people that were there that night have been through, I think that your mind 
has to cope by either going through events again and again to try and make sense of them or trying to forget certain facets that your psyche feels you just can't handle. Um, There are certain things about that night that um, when I was working with Liz and we were developing this story, I looked back at notes that I had, uh, I had had to ask for from the guards because I gave a statement the day after the funeral. And so I just wanted to make sure, you know, that I recalled everything that had happened. Um, and, you know, pretty, pretty much what I still have nightmares about everything from that night specifically is still very much with me. And it's very much, you know, some, some nights are better than others, but it's, it always returns. You can never forget it. You can never file it away. You can never really put it behind you. Of course you can't. Do you come to a point or are you at a point now where you, 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 you've learned how to live with it? Is that a way to put it? I think that's a very good way to put it, PJ. Um, I think it is, it's acceptance that there's always going to be this awful narrative that's going to play in my head. And it's telling myself that I don't have to go back there, that I know that it's going to play out in my head, that I know that I'm going to have to relive it at certain points just because that's how our minds work, but that I don't have to let it consume me. You know, I can, I can stop. I can, I can try and remember better times with Clarissa when we were playing together or baking together. I don't always have to go to that night. And it's hard to kind of stop yourself sometimes. Have you had help, therapy, counseling? I've had uh, a number of therapists, um, at least three or four. I have been very blessed in the, the friends that I have that I can talk to trying to just realize that, um, yeah, that, that some days are just going to be worse than others and really accepting that it's never going to leave me. But I, you know, if it left me, that would mean that I would forget that little girl and that would be the worst thing. Yeah. It, it, it must never leave you. You must, you must learn to live with it as part of you, but that it doesn't define you. And that's kind of where you are right now. I think you put it very, very well. Yes. It's living with it. It's not having that define you, but, you know, being your own person outside of your past, honoring your past, never forgetting that sweet little girl, but being able to go forward with just a positive outlook and her love in your heart, her memory always in your heart. I remember traveling to the funeral. And I remember noticing just the one coffin and thinking 
this was an incredible expression of love on your part. Obviously, the truth is now different. You very much regret that. You began to regret that almost immediately, did you, Rebecca? Absolutely. I... I think that the the expectation that I had to bury Clarissa so quickly was extremely, um, it, it just wasn't fair. You know, Clarissa and her father died on a Tuesday and they were buried on a Friday. And so in that small space of time, I had to decide what happened to this little girl that was my world and who was alive the day before. And the first thought that struck me at the time, you know, in the shock that I was in and in the raw, fresh grief that I was in was that I didn't want her to be alone. She wouldn't want to be alone. Hmm. And at the time, PJ, I didn't know uh, just how planned out Martin had gone, just the, the totality of the steps that he took to ensure that, you know, if it wasn't that day, um, he had the steps in place to carry out his end game another day. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. I thought like his family and friends that he just snapped but he didn't. And I know that now because I've, I've seen the documentation of steps that he took that day to ensure that, you know, if he, that Clarissa couldn't leave the country, he went to a, um, a family court and got a restriction put on her passport so that, you know, even if I wanted to, which is what certain people accuse me of, even if I wanted to, leave the country with Clarissa. I couldn't have done that. And just the way his will is written, it makes it very clear to me that he had planned what he was going to do as a punishment for me. But at the time, I didn't know that. Do you know how long he had spent planning it? I think he at least spent a month. It would have been two to three weeks to a month because he started changing his will um, early February. And I think that with the way his will reads, with the way his note reads, and um, with what he did that day in family court, I do think that it was it was just a matter of time. He was given the opportunity that night and he took it. And you were left, obviously, bereft. And in that moment, you thought that the right thing to do in your own mind, which was clearly not your own at the time. And I think I think you felt under pressure to do it as well. From whom, I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, I, I don't remember who introduced that idea. But I was, at the time, just... I didn't want to have to make that decision. Who wants to make the decision of where and how you bury your own child? 
No, nobody ever wants to make that decision or have to make it. Right. And I just thought, you know, I knew that I knew that Martin was in the wrong, but I also knew that Clarissa loved her father. And at the time I thought, well, she wouldn't want to be by herself. And even though her father killed her, she would still, if given the choice, I'm sure, as any three-year-old would, want to be with her father if she had the choice. Was that your thinking then or is that your thinking now? Oh, that was my thinking then. In, in many other parts of the world, you know, funerals do not happen as fast as they do in Ireland. No. And I think if I was given another week, honestly, to just process what had happened, I, I know that I wouldn't have buried them together because I didn't know about the family court. I didn't, I hadn't read his will. I didn't know many, many details until after the fact. You now do want to, if you can someday, exhume Absolutely. the grave, bring her home with you to, to America. I know you've looked into it legally with a great firm here in Cork with Martin Harvey and, and his company. Mm-hmm. Where is that now? You could do it, but it's very, very rarely done, I think, is your legal advice. So I had um, I gotten information uh, from a barrister that Mr. Harvey uses back in 2016. And the barrister pretty much told me, you know, with with the thought of possible objections and the fact that it's very, like you said, rarely done in Ireland that I would most likely be wasting my time. Um, oh, that somebody would try to stop you? Yes. Yes, that his family would try and stop me. Um which most likely they would. Um, and I think that at the time, you know, that was that was going through uh, losing Clarissa and then the legal fight for the estate afterwards, you know, that was a, a solid three years, mm-hmm. over three years. And so when I got to the end of that, where I had the opportunity to no longer be receiving solicitors' letters, solicitors' phone calls every single day, practically. Mm. You know, and after being told you would most likely be wasting your time, I just, I had to take a pause. I had to stop and say, look, I, I need to do something for me. Um, Is that where the idea came to, to speak to certain media? Is that where the idea came from as part of your closure, your recovery? I don't think that there's, I honestly, I think closure is something that will never happen. Mm. I do think that this is part of a journey. And I know that for me to not have these deep regrets, that I bury Clarissa with her father, to not have that pain so acute. I do still need to take further steps to see if it's possible to exhume her. Um, and it was just, you know, I'm, I'm in a better headspace right now. Yeah. Speaking her truth like this, how has that been as an experience? Her little truth that she could never speak for herself. How, how has that been for you? 
it has been like walking up a very steep mountain with a boulder around my neck. Um, but Liz was extremely sensitive and professional. Um, she couldn't have made it any easier on me. Uh, you know, she took it at my pace and, uh, it was just not knowing, not knowing the door that I was opening as I did this, but just knowing that the time was right for me and that it needed to be done. And so, uh, Liz reached out to me one day. I think that there was a similar case that happened in Ireland sometime last year. And, uh, Liz had reached out to me and, uh, she asked me if I would speak to her and I said, yes. And I'm very, very glad that subsequent to that, you have agreed to speak with me today and I'm very grateful to you for doing so. You, you have a new family now, a new life. And how are you in general? I, I couldn't ask for more than I have right now. And I just, I feel very blessed and very lucky that I, I've gotten the support to take me where I am. Um, I have a wonderful supportive husband. We have two beautiful little daughters and, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been easy getting here, but I think that I think that I can still feel Clarissa just holding me and being a part of our family, even though physically she's not here. She's very much part of, of you, though, and part of your past and always will be. Absolutely. This may seem like a strange question to finish, Rebecca. How do you feel about Martin McCarthy now? I, I, I really can't say that I feel that I'll ever be able to forgive him. Mm. You know, I just feel like, I feel like he used his daughter as a sword to stab me in the heart with. And I think that's very, very wrong. And I don't, I don't think that I'm ever going to be able to completely forgive him. I think you're a woman of remarkable courage. And I think that your little girl is looking down upon you and is very proud of her mom. Thank you. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Spectacular woman. She really is. That conversation was longer than that. Um, we were on the phone for, or on the Zoom connection for close on 45 minutes last night but that's the interview it recorded remarkable woman um, Rebecca Saunders I want to thank Michelle uh, for her help in setting that up it played a, a very important role at the weekend in setting that up for me and also to remind you again that the podcast which is about an hour long just under an hour long um, produced and presented by uh, Liz Dunphy that's the Liz that 
Rebecca refers to there. It's called Clarissa, A Life Stolen. And it's got an interview with Rebecca, but it's also got an interview with the Coast Guard leader on the night, which is a harrowing, harrowing interview. Wonderful, beautifully produced, very delicately and sensitively produced podcast called Clarissa, A Life Stolen. It's available on all the usual platforms now, uh, put together by the team at The Examiner. Yeah, Kate says it's an awful situation to be in the poor thing to have to go to court to try and get an exhumation. No necessary guarantee of success. And can that lovely lady get her baby's body exhumed and get their own little grave? Well, what she wants to do is have the body exhumed and take Clarissa back to America with her. Uh, She has good legal advice in Martin Harvey and co., Um, But it's difficult. It will be difficult. But I get the sense that after taking some time away, she is now in a better place, as she explained, and she's looking again at the possibility. So I I suspect and I very much believe that this story is far from over. Uh, I think that she is going to go down that route again if if there is a way at all to have her little girl exhumed and brought back to America to be with her and to bury her there. I think that's what she intends to do. If anybody tuned in this morning expecting to hear me speculating and fulminating and wondering and thinking what Neffet is saying at its meeting and what we'll be told tomorrow that we can and can't do and all that, you've come to the wrong place because that's not helpful. We've no idea what Neffet is going to suggest the papers would have you think otherwise, but we, we really we don't. And not only do we not know what Neffet will suggest, we then don't know what the government will do with that suggestion. So if you've come for speculation and and sort of notions of what might or might not happen, then you've come to the wrong place, unfortunately, for you at least. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. There was a very dramatic rescue uh, over the weekend. It took two days. Um, unfortunately, in the end, the vessel sank, but the crew were safe and well. Uh, Paul Stevens is lifeboat operations manager with uh, Castletown Bear Lifeboat. Paul, good morning to you. Good morning, TJ. How are you? Good. Tell me the story of the Ellie Odov, is it? Or the Ellie Odov? That's correct, Ellie Odov. Um, I suppose, as you said, this was a very prolonged rescue, which kind of spanned over two days and initially started off as something straightforward 
There was, on Friday morning, a 25-metre fishing vessel lost power 70 miles southwest of, of Castletown Bear. And is the case, you know, as is the, the, the usual thing in these sorts of situations, they requested assistance. Uh, they were drifting and had no power. And a tug, a local tug here from Castletown Bear was, was dispatched to, to provide assistance and to basically to tow them back here to, to port. However, um, the tug, when, when it was dispatched, I suppose, um, got into some difficulty itself. Um, the, the, the conditions were very poor out there and the tug hit some big seas and had three windows broken in. And then Castletown Bear Lifeboat here uh, under Coxon Dean Hegarty were tasked to escort the tug in because obviously they couldn't proceed. Um, also at that stage, the uh, Coast Guard rescue helicopter was dispatched and offered to take the <coughs> the, uh, the, fishy, the seven crew members on board, offered to take them off. Um, and at that stage, they assumed they were going to get a tow and um, they were going to be brought back to Bantry, mm-hmm. so they, Bantry Bay, so they, they declined that offer. So Castletown Bear escorted the, the, the tug um, back. They located it 17 miles southwest of here uh, and conditions were very poor. There was a 50 knot wind, which is a kind of force nine mm-hmm. and seven to eight meter swells. Um, so the fishing vessel then was 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 without help, and the the um, the Irish naval vessel, the George Bernard Shaw, was at anchor here in in Lawrence's Cove uh, by Bear Island, and they were dispatched, mm. and they arrived on Friday evening at nine p.m., and were going to monitor the situation overnight, uh, and take it in tow the next morning. Mm. However, on Saturday so morning... Really, what you're saying to me, but it, it was almost too dangerous to try to move it on at that point. At that point. So, wow. you know, the, 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 the conditions were, were, were due to slack a bit overnight, and they did indeed. And the naval vessel were going to take it in a... In a, a you know, the, the, the naval vessel were going to take the fishing vessel in tow. Um, but conditions worsened. And, you know, at one stage there was a 12-metre swell out there. And things changed because of the vessel started taking water. And for the benefit of a landlubber, Paul. Sorry, yes. yes oh, go, yes. go. Just, just. Can you give me a, a, a something we can see in our mind's eye? A twelve meter swell. That's waves of what? Thirty feet. That's waves the height of a, of a house. Of the height of a house. Yeah. Wow. Uh, combined with sort of very strong winds, making a very confused sea. And so, if you imagine a twenty-five meter fishing vessel in that going up and down. Uh, the bow of the boat, the front of the boat, digging into the waves and a kind of that seesaw motion for a long time, you know. Um, Saturday morning, conditions had worsened. Uh, the rescue helicopter from Shannon dropped down two pumps to the vessel now because at this stage they had no communication uh, and she was taking water. So the pumps obviously were to, to pump the water out of the vessel and a handheld VHF to, to give them communication again. Uh, and at that stage, then the Navy vessel attempted to get a tow on, but given the conditions, um, it was very difficult. So Saturday morning, we were tasked again to to go out and to, I suppose, assist the Navy. I mean, our lifeboat is 17 metres. The, the George Bernard Shaw is 90 metres. Mm. So just in terms of manoeuvrability, uh, it would have been useful for us to be able to, to get a tow on. But... But by the time we arrived there, a tow actually had been established. Uh, and at that stage, it seemed that everything was kind of okay. There would be a seven or eight hour tow to, to Bantry Bay and we would um, we would monitor that and stay alongside in case the tow snapped. But there was at that stage a gale coming in and um, the, 
the vessel now, the fishing vessel started taking water uh, more quickly and the pumps weren't able to deal with that water. So a decision was made then to, 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 to take the the, um, the casualties, the seven people on board, take them off. So the rescue helicopters from Shannon and Waterford were tasked mm. uh, and we were there. And at that stage, well, there was a bit of pressure because we weren't sure whether the helicopter would be able to take them off. So Castletown Bear lifeboat floated some um, life life rafts over just in case they had to take to the water. But thankfully, the the two with great skill, the two um, helicopters managed to to lift everybody and landed them safely in in Cork, Cork Airport. That, that's that's incredibly skilled work in those conditions. Huge work, and and in fact, some of my the crew when I was talking to them when they came in, you know, the even the 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 action or the operation of landing the winchman on the deck was extremely difficult because um, you can imagine in those seas the boat was rising up and down, and therefore the helicopter winchman has to kind of time that and rise up and down with that with that motion. Um, uh, so yes, and then the, the navy boat proceeded to tow the vessel started towing the vessel but after a while actually the, the tow parted and the vessel had to be abandoned and as you mentioned then yesterday morning the vessel sank there about um, two miles north of the Bull Rock there off the Bear Peninsula right. uh, but as you said also the, the good part of the story here is that the, the seven lives were saved you know yeah. yeah yeah incredible incredible work in what we would there be unusually bad conditions for the end of March no, I mean, you know, we've had we've had sort of a varying weather and if you if you if you go any bit offshore at all, sometimes you have very big seas, you know, but this was exceptional and I suppose what was exceptional about this rescue was you know, for example, when we went out on Saturday the lifeboat to escort the tug in, yes, conditions were bad, but we were only out for something over four hours. While the the Saturday operation the, the lifeboat was out for 14 hours, which is, you know, a significant amount of time. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's also worth mentioning for, for the other services, um, the prolonged nature of this meant, like, you know, the uh, superb coordination by the Valencia um, Coast Guard Marine Rescue Coordination Centre. Um, you know, they, they worked on this all day while doing their other work. And then, of course, our colleagues in the Navy. And then, as you mentioned, the particular skill of the, the, the helicopter crews yeah. in actually getting the people off. We also might forget, Paul, and we shouldn't, that so many of these people are just volunteers. Well, certainly the, the lifeboat crew are yeah. volunteers. Um, you know, our crew there gave up 14 hours. Um, I must say they, they arrived back tired and hungry after a day. But um, always very satisfying to have a positive outcome. You know, we, we, we sometimes have very tragic circumstances and we come home very quiet and um, subdued, maybe because things haven't been successful. But in this case, uh, a very positive outcome in that the seven persons who were in difficulty and who initially decided to stay on their boat because they thought, you know, they'd be back much sooner, um, they were rescued and then taken to safety. And I'm sure their families and everybody are are very pleased. Absolutely. They're, They're all okay, are they? They're all okay. Yeah. Great. Well, that, that I suppose, is the most important thing. Unfortunately, their business has gone under the yeah. sea with the Eliov, but Yeah, and that's always a very sad thing, yeah. you know, in a, a place like here, which is a fishing port. The news of a vessel sinking uh, is always something which, which, which kind of makes people very sad and, and uh, brings a bit of a loom around the place, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at least they're, they're all alive and well, and thanks to the 
work of people like yourself and your crew and all the others involved. Paul, thank you very much. That's Paul Stevens, the Lifeboat Operations Manager with Castletown Bear RNLI Lifeboat. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. 1850-715-996, the number to call, the text or WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. If you want to send us a little voice note on WhatsApp, it's that number also, 083-396-9696. You know, you don't want to go typing a really, really long text message and you don't have time to set up a telephone call well, the next best thing to do is drop us a voice note and uh, we can put that to air for you. If you missed anything in our first hour this morning, remember that our podcast is available in the early afternoon. It goes on Twitter first. We tweet the link and then it goes to all of your usual platforms and the Corks 96 FM app. And it is free of charge. The stories over the weekend about the mandatory quarantine, you'll have seen and been following, I assume, where three people absconded from the Crown Plaza. Two of them are back, I think. One of them is still on the loose. We discovered all sorts of rules and regulations, like there's security people working in the Crown, 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 Crown Plaza as part of this operation. They are not allowed to stop anybody leaving the hotel. There are soldiers there doing logistics and managing the whole thing. They're not allowed to stop anybody leaving the hotel. When someone leaves the hotel, all that can happen is either the private security people or the soldiers ring the guards. Because the guards aren't there. Permanently. They're not there all the time. Because apparently, they're not supposed to be seen as detention camps. That's that silliness. And then this morning... And over the weekend, we started seeing some pictures emerging on social media of one of the rooms in the Crown Plaza and this family complaining about the conditions and complaining about the size of the room and complaining, complaining, complaining and saying it was inhumane and all that. I've stayed in the Crown Plaza. I've been lucky enough to stay in that particular hotel in Dublin a number of years ago when we were flying out of Dublin on our holidays. Apologies to Cork Airport. You couldn't get us that year where we wanted to go. Um... There's nothing wrong with that place at all. And they've got adjoining rooms. Now, they've been moved now to to an apartment or a bigger suite or something, and they're, ha- they're happy now. But I just had to laugh at the idea that three lads were on a smoke break. Smoke break. And just decided to walk off out of the hotel. And nobody can stop them. Private security can't stop them. The soldiers can't stop them. Only the guards who aren't there. The guards have to be telephoned. Does it not remind you of a conversation that we had on this program a few weeks ago when we were thinking about mandatory quarantine here? It reminded me very much of a conversation that we had with Professor Mike Toole based in Melbourne where they brought in mandatory quarantine, discovered early on that certain things were, were wrong ended up in a second lockdown because of the mess they made of it the first time. So I asked Dr. Toole, Professor Toole, when our crowd were looking at putting mandatory quarantine in place, what we should avoid. Here's what he told me. 
I think the key mistakes to avoid is um, contracting or subcontracting private security guards. All staff should be employed by a single agency that can be government or um, non-government. The second is that all staff must be tested daily, including their days off. Thirdly, guests have to stay in their rooms for the entire state. Um, in Melbourne, people are not allowed to smoke either inside or outside their rooms, but they are provided medical support and given nicotine replacement therapy free of charge. Um, and I, I think we've learned there cannot be any exceptions. Everyone has to go into quarantine. All the things that he said not to do, we are now doing. It's a laugh, isn't it? A laugh! 1857, if it wasn't so funny, it would, or if it wasn't so serious, it would actually be funny. 1857-15996. Any thoughts on that? Welcome, by the way. Any thoughts? A lot of people spoofing on about, oh, they're Irish citizens, they should be able to come and go free of charge and free and that. Go away. Anyway, to something closer to home, and I think far more serious than people whinging about quarantine. PJ, please don't give out my name. I'm looking for your help. I'd be really grateful if you could help. And before I go any further, I've spoken to this chap uh, and he declined an opportunity to be interviewed, which is his right. He was worried about being identified and that kind of thing. I lost my job six weeks ago due to COVID. Work went very quiet, so it ended with me being laid off. Then I lost the place I was staying in. On top of that, my number one asset, my car, had to go to the garage. The mechanic says it's basically on its last legs now. I'm living in the car because I've no place to stay. The engine is goosed and it's just blowing out freezing cold air through the heaters. Trust me, it's cold these nights. I use two or three coats and jumpers just as a blanket. My PUP covers my bills and the car but leaves me with more or less pocket change parking in car parks on the side of the road in friends driveways and on beaches and things well it just doesn't cut it I'm paranoid there's people around the car at night I'm freezing cold and it's playing with my thoughts it's really not nice PJ I'm emailing you and I want to ask if you can throw this out to your listeners I'd be really grateful if someone had an old caravan or even a tent where I'd actually be able to lie down flat Thank you for your time in reading this. And as I said, I spoke to him, uh, but he declined an offer for interview. Nervous of being identified, and that's okay too, but we do have all of his details. And we put him in touch, or we made it possible for him to speak with our old friend Bernard O'Hare. Bernard, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. And again, without without identifying this chap, um, I think you, you have been put in contact. Uh, well, no, just at the moment now we're just trying to find out about what's going on, but not physically, I suppose, yeah. happened from as of yet. Um, no, I was in, I was chatting to Fergal about it the other day, you know, and I, I actually was not aware that you had spoke to him yet as well. Um, he said he lost his job six weeks ago, and then three weeks after, was it that he lost his um, flat? Yeah. yeah. You see, the thing at the moment as well, and obviously you hope the lad is okay, but you know, the Rental Tenancies Act 2020 that was amended for 
you know, during COVID-19. Yeah. They signed in on the 31st of December, yeah. So that's, and it's extended out to the 15th. So if she's impacted by COVID, sorry, if COVID has impacted his, you know, financial or, I suppose, housing needs over that, then he has, he can't be uh, evicted. Mm. At least not until the 15th, and then I think then there's a 10-day grace period after that. Well, there is a number of reasons why someone would be evicted during it, but um, that act was more brought in to protect the sort of, I suppose, renters and stuff impacted by COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can anything be done for him? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, I mean, we have some tents there as well. Now, as straight up, I haven't been out in the street once, but I still have you know, the contact and stuff, but we got some of them um, pods off a group in Limerick as well and a couple of sleeping bags, so he's more than welcome to have them and if there's anything else then that we can put him in contact with some of the other great groups that are out there, you know. What's the situation, Bernard, with beds in the shelters at the moment? Well, I know, like, obviously we're always going to have people who will stay out and stuff, Um I've often, you often hear reports that they say the beds are full when they're not, and that's not me trying to start anything, but um, I think they're doing a pretty good enough job in terms of housing the homeless now through, you know, the city council and the rental department there, um, you know, between the hotels that are on offer, you know, the commons, etc. Um, but yeah, the, the, you're always going to have people who are going to stay out for one reason or another, you know? Yeah. When someone finds themselves in a position like this, Bernard, going from having a place to live to not having a place to live, which can happen in a very short space of time. You yourself yeah. have been on the streets, so you know what it feels like out there. Yeah. Like, you need massive help. You, uh, clearly, this is a guy, I, I think, from reading and from the brief conversation I had, he had never contemplated that this might happen to him. So he has nowhere to reach, no notion of who to turn to. Yeah. That's an awful lost place, isn't it, Bernard? No, it, it is. And again, I'd love to s- sympathise with him on that and the dangers of, or, you know, feeling paranoid or danger about sleeping out at night. I've, I've had to do it myself early back in the day, you know, when I was sanctioned, as you hear that famous word. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I've been told there was a bed available at the other hostel, and then there wasn't, so I ended up having to, well, sleeping across in the mercy in an old factory, you know. Mm. So thank God I had some people with me, but other nights then just be walking around for hours, like because I definitely like homelessness. Actually, I suppose broke me to break anyone. What you're going through, or psychologically even, and I never condo- condone it, as you know. But there's no wonder that so many people end up then. If not addicted beforehand, then you're definitely going to be once you're thrown into the mix because it's can very easily happen. Yeah. You know. And, and of course you're 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 a pusher's prey then. Oh, oh listen, you, you only have to even go first thing in the morning around the city and you'll see it. And again it's not a war and drug dealers or anything like that, but you know, Leon passed away last week and I was actually looking at my memory. I was gonna ask you about him actually. Yeah. You, Leon, I to I think he was the lad God bless him. He was the guy who used to salute me some mornings and I was walking past Debenhams on my way up here. Oh, 100% sounds like him, even his friend. To be about 10 or, 10 or quarter past seven, he was he yeah. was stirring one morning and and um, and he, he, he just gave me a wave as as I passed, mm. you know? Yeah, no, all the stories were told about him, even the family friend there, Kaylee Lawless, who was talking on behalf of the family that, you know, the stories he told him, 
know I, I remember myself years ago one of the first prop well I'm saying proper friends but himself and his brother Ross got us to so and his other brother Damien you know yeah. so he was a really good lad yeah. but there was another I was looking at the memories on Facebook and I started to tell you this very quickly you can ask Paul Byrne about this one he done the piece for them about three years ago right in around Easter obviously but uh, one of the girls that he ended up having I suppose a more in-depth interview with after the street run is now no longer with us you know as well yeah. She about two years dead of the overdose as well. Um you know, so this is it's a recurring it's a recurring thing. Yeah. And you know, it's I hate to say it like this, but it's today's newspaper, tomorrow's fish wrapper. I know. Unless attitudes change. Yeah, I think, and, and we've spoken before, and just before I come back to to our friend that we're trying to help at yeah. the moment, like, oh, yes, yeah. we, you yeah. and I have spoken before, Bernard, at length, you know, about the number of people that you know that are no longer with us. It's, it must run to nearly, what, 30 now? Uh, it, it, it's, it's crazy. I have a little shrine here, and I have, I know it sounds mad saying that, but I've no space left for pictures and stuff like that. that there's so many, you know, Dublin John, Marcy, Kenneth, you know, Leon, you Jimmy. know, just yeah. Timmy, you know, yeah. and, and poor old Timmy was murdered, like yeah. Frankie. You yeah. know, and I don't think to say it so bluntly, but that's the danger yeah. of being on the street, so... Yeah. You can sympathise with this gentleman. You can, you can imagine how terrified he must be as well. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you're not, especially when you're not used to it. See, where I come from back home, it's, you, you, you'd read about it on the news or you'd see the most lads in the Sunday world crime section to know it was a mad old spot. So I've grown up seeing a lot of stuff and nothing ever compared, or sorry, compared, nothing ever prepared me for what homelessness done. The stigma, how people view you, you know, this is why I always say about drugs, and I don't mean to put it in the context of any, everyone who's homeless is on drugs, there's different demographics, but it's, it's, it's a horrible world. Like, yeah. it's, it's degrading, really. It's a world you just want out of. All right, Bernard, oh. listen, I know that you're going to make more, more solid contact with this guy. Oh, yeah. and, and just very out. quickly there, yeah. PJ, though, like if he wants as well, he can add solid contact, as you said. But the information on the act in regards to his uh, tenancy is online as well. So if you need me to send it on to you, I can. Very good. All right, Bernard, thank you very much, as always, for your help doing incredible work behind the scenes with, with our homeless, as are many others. But Bernard is a guy who does nothing get credit for the incredible work that he does, much of it on his own, Bernard O'Hare. 1850-715-996. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM. Monday afternoon at work, working from home or in the car, I've got the tunes, everything that's happening in Cork and the bit of crack on the radio you need to help you through the day. See you from midday on Cork's 96 FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96 FM. If we get one complaint a week from people who are just terrorised or generally browned off at the behaviour of their neighbours, we get a half a dozen. Um, and sometimes it goes from just annoyance, where your neighbours next door are just a pain in the ass. there's no great harm to them, they're just a pain in the ass. to neighbours who are just a nuisance and wreak havoc and you, you really, really wish that you didn't have to live next to them at all. And sometimes they do damage and they wreak havoc. 
and you know if you're if you're one of the victims of these things you know who I'm talking about it's all over the place it's not one family it's not one incident it's dozens of them they're all over for some reason people have this thing about trying to live together in the same street when someone just doesn't fit in they don't fit in but they're now turning to support after crime services to see can they get help and to see can they get some access to services to to maybe dig them out of the situation that they find themselves in. Sally Hanlon joins me from Support After Crime. Hi Sally. Hi PJ, how are you? Good, good. Being in the vicinity of a troublesome neighbour, it's it's just not something you've been thinking about. It goes to all sorts of levels, but people are coming to you. Why are they coming to you? They're coming to us because they can't cope any longer with the situations they find themselves faced with. And, I mean, the article on the paper, we we won't deal with one case alone because they're happening everywhere. Yeah. And, I mean, our service covers Limerick and Clare and Waterford and Tipperary, and they're also happening in those areas. So it's not, it's just not Cork alone, you know. So people who are at their wit's end, who can't live at peace in their home, who are afraid to be in their home, are looking at the way of, you know... How do they cope with it? What can they do? Hmm. If they own their own home, they're worse off because, you know, they can't sell it and not in a position to sell it and paying a big mortgage on it. So you're, 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 they're caught. They're stuck, PJ. Like we all want, all these people want is peace. Peace hmm. to be able to live in, in a nice, pleasant atmosphere that was in the areas until these other people were moved in by the councils. Yeah. And is it always councils, or it could be just someone who comes in privately, couldn't it? Well, for what we have, the cases that have come our way are, are, are council houses, yeah. Okay. And I suppose the other thing too about it is, Tally, is, and from talking to solicitors over the years, it's legally very difficult to force these people to behave. Oh, legally. You see, if you report it and you call the guards and the guards come to the house, right, then you're waiting for the further backlash once the guards are gone. Yeah. And the guards can't be there all the time. And the guards are treating it seriously. And a quick question for you, Sally. Like, if you're in an estate with maybe 10 or 15 houses and it's one troublemaker... Yes. Like, is that troublemaker entitled to know who, who called the guards? I would imagine so. Yeah. Now, so I can't give you a definite yeah. answer on that. But I suppose if the guards call to the house of the complainant and yeah. the neighbours see the guards there... It doesn't take two and two, yeah. Oh, well, it wouldn't take a lot for to come up with who made the call. Yeah. And you know, uh, it's dreadful. Look, you know, we're talking about... You know, every, lockdown and COVID is hard and very hard on everyone. Is it making it worse? I think so, because people are, you know, socialising in some of these houses, friends coming, drinking parties until the early hours of the morning, arguments, loud talk, um, actually taking the drink out into the gardens and out into the front of the house. And it can ensue in damage to property after that. Yeah. And bear in mind, in some of these houses of the people we've dealt with, there are young children. Yeah. And that's terrifying for them because neither the parents can't 
behave normally, you know, around the children. They're on edge. So therefore, the children are going to pick up on that. Yeah. I remember getting messages a few weeks ago, just, again, messages on my phone over the weekend. You know, someone who was in an estate like that now, and there was a party going on right. in one of the houses at the end of the, st- at the, end of the estate, clearly yeah. in breach of, of restrictions, and there was, you could hear music coming and all this. Right. And what I get was, well, well, I'd call the guards, but should I be paying for it next week? Yeah, and that's the fear, PJ. That is the fear that they have that, okay, they can't continue to live without doing, taking some action, but they know there will be reprisals. Yeah. And there have been reprisals and threats and name-calling and all of that. Yeah. And, and I know that Fer- Fergal, for example, has dealt with so many people off-air who would be just too terrified to come on air because yes. they said the front room windows would be in around me before we were finished talking. They would, and their voices would be recognised as well unless they were changed. But look, it's... What can I we mean, do about this, Sally? Is there anything? I don't know. I saw the article on the Echo and Sarah had done that some time ago. And I suppose I know what happened to Chris and he speaks well about it and he, he's well able to put his own case because he walked in, the, in those people's shoes. You know, he was a victim of it. Um, but maybe he had more clout behind him yeah. in his role that he was able to get. Yeah, this, this, is, this is Chris O'Leary, to, to just to remind listeners. I remember Sorry. being down. Yeah, okay. I remember being down the house with him when that happened, down, down in Mahan. right? Oh, yeah. I went down, I went down the day after. Um, yeah. to see what he'd do in an interview. And very bravely he did. He just wasn't, he wasn't putting up with it. Like. No. Um, but like, we could say like, okay, what people to put up with it. You can't day in, day out. Nobody should have to live in fear. You know, as, as I say, if they were to sell their houses, uh, the particular people we were dealing with, they'd get nothing for the house because any viewer, potential viewers, would suss out the situation and see, no, no, why are they moving? And they need only drive up and see why they'd be moving. Exactly. All right, listen, Sally, there isn't a whole pile of hope out there, but... No, but we always have to have hope that somebody's going to do the right thing. Yeah. Would you you still encourage people to pick up the phone to the guards? Oh, yes. Mm. Yes. If, yes if they feel that they can't cope any further. Nobody should, they all should have respect. They should have respect in their own homes and peace in their own homes. And, you know, somebody has to be accountable. If you're a tenant in a property, you have to, like we rent, we're, we're renting our office. We must maintain our office. We must keep it right. And we're accountable to our landlord. So everybody must be accountable to somebody. Mm-hmm. And in this case, if it's the council as the landlord, well, there should be some, I don't want to make it a state uh, country, uh, but there must be accountability. And the people who are making the complaints must be taken seriously because yeah. nobody would make a complaint without it being genuine. All right. Sally, always good to talk to you on the programme. Sally Hanlon from Support After Crime Services. It is an epidemic, to use a much overused word these days, but people, noisy neighbours, troublesome neighbours, disruptive neighbours, downright criminal neighbours, it is a, an epidemic within the pandemic at the moment. Sally's advice is do always call the guards. We spoke previously, I think, with William Harvey from Martin Harvey's solicitors about how you go about taking issue 
with a, a troublesome neighbour and it is fraught with difficulty. But that doesn't mean you can't try or you shouldn't try to get some peace for yourself and your family. 1850-715-996. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on side. Hi, it's Michael with an update on Cork's entertainment. There's only two days left to enjoy the nine rehearsed readings in Made in Cork Play It By Ear. Finishing on Wednesday night, there's still time to listen to plays by Connell Creedon, Jerry Fitzgibbon, Liam Halen, Kate Hall. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Irene Kelleher, John McCarty, James McKeown, and Patrick Talbot. You'll find more details at EverymanCork.com. Access all areas. Europe's number one tribute to the Beastie Boys, Beastie Coys, comes to Cypress Avenue in September to put on the ultimate Beastie Boys experience. The show takes place on Thursday, September 23rd, and tickets are available now from cypressavenue.ie. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled show coming up or any live streaming events by emailing aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on side. On Cork's 96FM. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083 396 96 96. On Cork's 96FM. Now we've been talking about this a bit later on this morning. There is a video emerging now from the Suez Canal area where they've finally managed to shift that big hulk of a vessel, the Evergreen, that was literally jammed across the canal for the last week. It's been freed and it's moving, and hopefully now that's the end of the problem, or near to the end. Later on, I'll be talking to the Corkman who predicted something like this would happen a number of years ago, and who says that even now that it's been freed up, it still has major implications because of the hundreds of vessels that have been held up because of it. And believe it or not, some of those vessels may end up running the risk of being uh, attacked by pirates. Yes, pirates, believe it or not. So we'll catch up with that one after 11. 1850 Let me look at the front page of the... Or page 8, or page 6 rather, sorry, of this morning's Echo, where a local councillor has said that there's uh, a lot of concern in Balancholic about unacceptable levels of antisocial behaviour in the past number of weeks. That's Fianna Fáil's Colm Kelleher. Colm, good morning to you. Good morning, Peter. Uh, 
Anti-social behaviour in Ballincollig is is not new, um, you know. But but you see, there seems to be a an increase in it lately. Yeah, look, it, it's I suppose anti-social behaviour is there since the dawn of time. Um, you know, we we would have had our fair share of it growing up, I suppose, the same as any other uh, town within within Ireland and no part of the city. Um, but I suppose just recently, particularly within the last month or so, um, I've had just had a few um, you know residents contact me in the area in relation to incidents of criminal damage earlier this month when rocks and stones were thrown at vehicles and properties uh, all within the same area. And they seem to be kind of congregating at um, the back of um, the regional park in an area known as Miller's Court that would look uh, overlook the new walkway that runs parallel with Ballincollig. Yeah. The beautiful new walkway that was um, installed there, you know? Yeah. Patrick's night was particularly bothersome, I believe. Yeah, look, obviously, you know, youths and Patrick's night and, you know, they were obviously drinking and, you know, what have you and... Um, there was, you know, a, a lot of, um, you know, there, there was a lot of uh, reports went in uh, locally um, to myself that night um, of youth. They were around the area, but look, they were dispersed when when the guards came upon the scene. Um, there was no arrest made on Patrick's night. Um, I think, you know, the night that was in it, it could have been, you know, just uh, adding to fuel to the fire that's already down there, like, you know. Mm, what, to arrest people? Well, no, I suppose adding fuel to the, the, the anti-social aspect of it, Patrick's nice youths and their drinking and stuff right. like that, you know. Um, you know, similar behaviour. There was gangs of up to 25 teenagers. Um, yeah. they, they were jumping walls. They were, you know, shouting, roaring, kicking balls off cars. Colm, do, do we need, and I, look, I know you're not a Garda, but do, or, do we need to move a bit beyond, go home there now, lads, for God's sake. Do, I, like, that's what we seem to be dealing with it all. Go on my home now, lads. Like, goodbyes. We need to get a bit beyond that, don't we? Well, look, the instance of uh, criminal damage that took place earlier the, the, uh, this month when there was um, effectively a large rock or stone thrown over the dividing wall between Miller's Court and uh, the walkway in the regional park, my understanding is the guards have arrested someone for that. Um, and uh, my understanding is that uh, there's a file being prepared uh, for the DPP in relation to that. But, you know, if you do act out and, you know, you, you, you are caught in antisocial behaviour or even this instance, criminal damage, you you know, definitely they should be brought before the courts and it should be shown to them in no uncertain terms that if you do act out of line and if you do cause criminal damage that there are repercussions. Mm. But I suppose to answer your question in relation to, come on now lads, go on away home. Um, look PJ, you know as well as I do, you can go to any corner of the country and you'll get youths congregating and you know, I suppose particularly with lockdown and stuff like that, they're a bit fed up. If mm. there's no criminal damage or there's no laws being broken and, you know, there's loitering in an area. Well, that's the thing. If there's any more, if they are hanging around eight or nine of them at the moment or ten of them, they are actually breaking the law. Oh, 100%. Like we Under, just standing yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, 100% loitering at the moment and gathering in large groups is prohibited under the public health guidelines and they will be asked to disperse and I'm, my understanding is that's what effectively happened on yeah. Patrick's case. Um, but look, um, you know, like there is... I suppose different aspects into the regional park or different avenues into the regional park. Now we had a local area committee meeting uh, last Monday week. Um, myself and my fellow ward councillors, we were speaking about issues in Clashdove Park, um, and there's a request gone in there for CCTV cameras. And I also, yeah. what are the CCTV facilities like in the general area? 
Um, well, I suppose, look, Ballon Colleague in, in, in its whole would be, I suppose, through private CCTV and the ones we have in the main street are, is, is effectively covered. The regional park is minimal, to be quite honest with you, very, very minimal. Um, it's a 300-acre site. It would also be next to impossible to put CCTV uh, to blanket the entire park. But I requested that CCTV cameras be installed at what I would consider hot points going into the regional park, um, access points for them in and out of there, where they seem to be congregating because, like, in the you know in the winter in March and February and when the, the nights are still a bit dark you know the clocks went forward there yesterday now but um, they're not congregating in the in the depths of the park where there's no light they seem to be you know just inside the wall where there's a bit of street light where they can see each other and stuff like that so what I would effectively call hot spots now um, I was speaking with the executive in City Hall and the price to install uh, one aspect of CCTV footage is about fifteen thousand mm. and. Then thousand per annum to monitor it. So, you know, if, if if I was going down the route of getting three of the I suppose hottest of the hot spots, um, you know, you're you there's a considerable cost involved in a click, you know. You're 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 up at forty five thousand straight away of an outlay and then you have an additional six thousand to monitor then per annum then. Now, when you consider us as a council, you know, where we ran our budget close to balance last year, we had a deficit of about 1.4 million. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously with COVID and everything like that, um, funds are a bit tighter with rates, receipts and stuff being down for the city. And car parking, you wouldn't believe the amount of money the city um, relies on from car parks that mm. are used at the moment, you know. So, but look, um, hopefully COVID will ease in June uh, when we get the vaccine properly rolled out and, you know, funds will start coming in again. And I will be requesting uh, that Cork City Council look, seriously take a look at uh, installing CCTV cameras at these three hotspots. Um, you know, it'll act as a deterrent. Well, for what, 45 grand you said to do it all? Well, for, on three points, yes. Yeah. Three access points would be about 45,000 and 2,000 per annum then to monitor Realistically, that, that, that's not a lot of money, Colm, to be fair. That's not a lot of money. But look, I suppose in the grand scheme of things, when you consider we our budget for this, uh, the entire city is close on a quarter of a billion last year. Um, exactly. Quarter of a billion. Yeah, 45,000 out of a quarter of a billion is not a lot of money. If, do you know in the grand scheme of things? It's, it's, look, I would I would consider 45,000 a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, in comparison to the budget, it isn't. Um, so that's why I will be requesting that, you know, um, you know, it, it, it be made available next okay. year. But you have to understand the budget we're working with this year. As you said, we ran a deficit of one point, I think it was 1.9 million. Um, we got, we were presented with a deficit of one point, or 9.4 million, and we got yeah. it down to 1.9. Ah, yeah, so, that, that's, that, that's the accounting, in the, and obviously, look, yeah. the, the accounting is a matter for the council itself, and to be fair, they do have to balance their books, but it's not a whole pile of money out of the budget. There must be somewhere to, to find it, to clamp down this kind of thing, because at the end of the day, when you're going to bring, if you're going to bring people through through the courts, or if you have to repair criminal damage, it ends up costing people more. I'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much, Colin Callagher, Fianna Fáil uh, City Councillor for the Ballincollig area. Thank you, 1850 45 grand for three sets of CCTV in in Ballincollig, have to say that that's not a lot of money when you consider the things that money is spent on in councils. Realistically, a couple of comments coming in about that quarantine, people absconding, and all of that, and antisocial behaviour. I'll get to those. I will get to those. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. But more about the vaccines over the weekend. 
A lot of people getting them now, starting to get them now, but a lot of people left behind. And in the midst of it all, we had that desperate situation, disgraceful situation uh, with the Beacon Hospital in Dublin, which now has had its vaccine clinic status taken off it uh, on the instructions of the Minister for Health, or at least he's asked it to be taken off it because of what happened where spare vaccine doses were given to the teachers in a private school, a private school which, you know, coincidentally, the children of the boss at the Beacon attend. It's all a bit rotten, really, and it's a it's a big one, and it's not going to go away. There are people are calling for his head, the head of the Beacon Hospital, to be to resign. Um, we don't do that in this country. We don't resign in this country. Simon Coveney was dancing around it like something from the ballroom of romance yesterday. Uh, instead of just doing what I think politicians need to do and speak straight, plain English, that if Simon Coveney or any other minister thinks that the head of the beacon needs to go, then bloody say it. Stop dancing around with words. It's ridiculous. Anyway, on another note, some people are still desperately waiting for a vaccine They're in very vulnerable groups. They literally can't go outside the door because COVID would actually kill them. And they're so desperately waiting for their vaccine. Mark, you're one of them. Good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Now, you're very anxious to stress that your beef is not with any of the medics. No, no, not at all. There's been nothing but supportive. But uh, the issue is with the vaccine rollout itself. Tell me about your condition. COVID would be the end of you. Yeah, so I've a rare blood disease where basically my red blood cells don't collect the oxygen from my lungs to carry around my body. So I suffer from a low blood oxygen level on a daily basis as it is. And I'm on an oxygen machine. Um, so one of the big things with COVID is that those who get fairly severe COVID, um, their blood oxygen levels drop. So because I already have a low blood oxygen level on a day-to-day basis, if I were to get COVID on top of my own condition, um, I, I, I'd be petrified. I, I'd have no way of fighting it off. We're talking about what we constantly hear referred to in medical terms as the SATs. Yeah. And most people, normal resting SATs in a healthy person is between 98 and 100%. Exactly. What's yours? So on a daily basis, it could be anywhere from kind of 82, 83 to kind of on a, on a good day, it might be up around kind of 96%. That's dangerously um, low. Wow. It is. Like I, I've ended up in hospital on several occasions where my skin is kind of the same color as a corpse. I've got blue lips and a blood oxygen level so low that I'm struggling to comprehend anything. Um, and my parents have had to call an ambulance and wow. I've, I've been back in to hospital for months on end. And what happens to you when the levels drop? You just get all fuzzy, is that it? Uh, so uh, I find it difficult to breed. Um, so even though technically I, I'm breeding, my, my lungs work perfectly, yes. but it's the, the, the blood isn't carrying the oxygen around. So then I suffer from a lack of oxygen to my muscles, my organs, my uh, everything. Um, so it, it, your, your, your body is amazing. It'll try to protect the organs, so it, it cuts off from the outside in. So that's why my skin would literally go the colour of a corpse. The, the blood is trying to save the bit of oxygen that it has, so it stops getting it to my skin. 
first, then it'll stop giving it to my muscles to, in order to try and protect the organs. Um, and uh, eventually, if, if I'm not treated in time, um, then the organs start to suffer as well. So you live on oxygen. I mean, are you on, yeah. o- on oxygen now as we speak? Yeah. Right. It's a cannula, is it, in your nose? Yeah, so I have my, my nasal prongs. I've got a big machine at home, which I'm on by night, and then I've got my portable smaller machine, which I can use by day um, if I'm going out and about. Now, that was pre-COVID, so I haven't left the house in over a year, but um, I, I'm on oxygen constantly. Wow, and you're only 29. Yeah. yeah. You desperately need this vaccine to even have any quality of life at all. Yeah, like... Uh, uh, all I want is to be able to have a bit of peace of mind. I, I am literally petrified on a, a daily basis because, like I said, having a low blood oxygen level as it is, if I were to get COVID on top of it, I, I wouldn't be able to fight it off. Um, so I haven't been leaving the house. Um, and I, I mean, all I'm looking for is not to go to wild house parties or uh, to go on holidays. So I, I'm talking about the freedom just to be able to say, um, I'm going to go to the shop to get a few ingredients because I enjoy baking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the simple things, the things that yeah. we all take for granted. Like you said, you're not looking you're not looking to go out on the on, on the lash. No. You know, you're not you're just looking to be able to go to the shop. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you can't even you can't take the risk. No, I can't take the risk. Mm. And like for for me, like over the past year, so we've we've a lot of people saying like so we're in lockdown three at the moment. But but for me, it, it's the lockdown number one. So like there last summer when restrictions were eased, cause numbers had dropped dramatically, and we were able people were able to go to their beer gardens and the pubs that served a, a bit of food and that. Like I, I didn't have a summer in beer gardens or pubs that served a bit of food. I I was still petrified that if if I like it, all I need to do is meet one person with it um, and that could be the end of things for me so I, I've avoided everybody outside of immediate family so I'm here at home with mother and dad um, so I haven't had the, the, the summer that everyone else had last summer no, I, I, I'm not complaining and I'm, no, I won't begrudge no. anyone and, and by the way I mean how hard has it been for, for your folks to keep you safe I mean obviously they've got to they've got to be exceptionally careful too yeah they do Um Mum is at home here with me all the time. Um, Dad has had to go to work, so he's finding it uh, difficult, I suppose, to make sure that he's not bringing anything home to me um, because he's he's an engineer in the army, so he's had, um, I suppose, not direct contact. Luckily, I've been very lucky over the past year, but he has had situations whereby... Um, he's had to isolate because he has been a, um, a contact of a contact through work. And I'd just be petrified then, so um, he has had to isolate in order to prevent anything from being passed to me. Now, when you were told or when you heard that vulnerable people like yourself were being were being brought up the list, d- did you expect you'd get a call soon or have have you speak, spoken to your GP about when you might get a call? Yeah, so I was quite excited, I suppose, when I heard that they changed the rollout plan and a group number four were, cha- were changed to those in society from 16 to 65 with a severe underlying condition who would be at severe risk. Um, and I thought, oh, this is great. I've gone from group seven to group four. Um, 
and I said it to my doctor because with my condition I have to get blood tests regularly so I'm I've been in contact with my uh, doctor and I said it to the nurse the week before last was last time I was speaking to her now when I had my blood son again and what she said to me was the directive they received from the HSE was that the HSE are using hospital patient databases in order to choose who is in the um, severely at risk category. And they're using a list of criteria. Um, so there's, there's a couple of conditions listed and that's it. And I said, like, is my condition listed? What I have is quite rare. She says, it's not. Um, so I said, can I be referred? And she says, this is the thing. We were hoping to be able to refer patients, but in the directive we've received from the HSA, because they're using a hospital patient database, they're not looking for referrals from consultants or GPs at this moment in time. Crikey. So that means like someone like me who is at severe risk isn't being called anytime soon. You're not because on the list. I, I'm not on the list because right. my, my condition isn't listed. And on top of that, say, my condition, so I was diagnosed in November 2017. Um, I'd been relatively healthy up until then. Um, I'd, I'd been hospitalised a few times then through the years, which what we thought was severe asthma, but it ended uh, up, um, they think now that my condition was always kind of in the background and and getting slowly and progressively worse. And then in November 2017, I collapsed and ended up in uh, ICU um, and I was in quite a bad way and it kind of went from there of having to your your diagnosis. Do you know what, Mark, when you see something in the news like what happened last week, now I know that that was Dublin and that yeah. those vaccines would have been of no use to you, but if, if when you look at something that happened like in the Beacon Hospital last week and, and it was given out to teachers in a private school, uh, like there was no sequencing of any kind done, you must be livid when you hear that going on. Oh, absolutely. Like on Saturday my GP surgery had up on Facebook that they have ordered 225 vaccines for their next set of doses starting next Monday. They've been declined and are only going to receive 90 because there's a shortage of vaccines. And do I look at it? So they've requested 225 because they have people in the, they're still doing the over 70s in my own GP surgery at the moment, but they, they have patients who need vaccines and are in the current group uh, that are being vaccinated. So, like, the, the Beacon clearly had received too many if they were able to give it to uh, teachers in a private hospital, in a private school, um, while uh, there's GP surgeries around the country who aren't able to yeah. get to, to their own patients. Yeah, it's it's like one rule for some people and one rule for the rest of us. Mark, thank you very much. The Opinion Live with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. Well, this one's been up on my screen for a little while. Not entirely sure where you go with it. I think someone wants us to solve an argument for them. All right. So you kind of need to know your way around the city for this. The left lane on Patrick Street as you're going northbound right the left lane is that only 
for filtering over onto Lavitz Key, or can you go up to Patrick's Bridge as well from that lane? <laughs> Sounds to me like someone is in an argument with their buddy or took the turn and doesn't know whether they should have or not or got beeped at as they took it. So the left lane, as you come up Patrick Street there, northbound, past, say, Eason's, and there's a, a bus stop there and there's a taxi rank there and a few things like that. There's a lane there and you can use that lane to go off left down Lavitz Key. But our caller wants to know, can you also use that lane to go across Patrick's Bridge? It seems to be a kind of a, a solving argument for me because we can't figure out for ourselves what the story is. Listen to things that be occupying people on a Monday morning. If you have any thoughts, you know where we are. 1850 the number. Text or WhatsApp or your voice notes to 083-396-9696 and your email is opinion at 96fm.ie. Uh, the Twitter is at opinionline96 and of course there's the Cork's 96FM Facebook page. Drop us a message there. Mark it if you would for the attention of the opinion line. And remember, if you missed anything in our first couple of hours this morning, the podcast will be available in the afternoon on all platforms, including the Cork's 96FM phone app. See in the Examiner story there today where hospitals are struggling to find, and this is in the wake of Mark's call, and I'm going to be talking to Atacan in just a sec. Hospitals are struggling to find patients for COVID-19 vaccines. Vulnerable patients. This is according to Neve Griffin, their health correspondent. This was out over the weekend that hospitals are struggling to contact vulnerable people and are now asking GPs and pharmacists for help. There's at least 150,000 people in this group that need vaccination. But there is no national registry. There's no list. So unless you happen to be on a list in, in the hospital... Uh, they're they're not contacting you. And also, as Mark said, there's a list where his particular condition isn't on it to add to the problem. Like some of those, anyone whose BMI is over 40, people with chronic neurological diseases, people with cancer, advanced cancer, diabetics, who've been in hospital in the last 12 months, people whose respiratory illnesses have brought them into hospital in the last... 12 months but they have no way of knowing no lists so they can't find people to take up these precious vaccines and as we know they only last for about 6 or 7 hours once they're taken out of the freezer 1850 now Atacan you also you might, you've added in the disease remind us again what that is good morning good morning PJ how are you keeping good good um so Addison's disease is a rare, rare disease where two hormones which sit on top of an ordinary person's kidneys do not work for me. Right. But for an ordinary person, they are supposed to operate um, normally and ordinarily. And these two hormones control how your body functions each day. They produce um, cortisol. And for me, with Addison's disease, I do not produce cortisol because these two uh, hormones do not work for me, they're not active for me. So how are you physically affected by that, Atticon? Every day I'm kind of physically affected by kind of fatigue. Kind of some days I just have low mood, like over the weekend now, maybe two or three days now, I would have had very low mood and kind of just, you know, being down on yourself and kind of headaches sometimes and just really just feeling very, very tired and kind of having abdominal pain. 
Right. And if you were to get COVID, you would be vulnerable, would you? Oh, very, very severely. Like in the UK now, they classed um, people with Addison's disease as what's referred to as CEV, which is clinically extremely vulnerable. Right. And that means that if you get COVID, you're really, really vulnerable to it. And that in the case of me now, if I get COVID-19, I could end up in a coma in ICU with COVID because with Addison's disease, there's cases where if you get really, really sick, even if you get a really, really severe vomiting bug, you can end up in hospital and you nearly collapse. And this happened to me now um, three or four years ago where I got really, really sick because yeah. I wasn't diagnosed with Addison's disease at the time. And this and is because your in... immune system is all haywire as well, is it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I just feel really, really, I'm really, really um, vulnerable to um, to COVID because of this. And like a normal person now that has no underlying medical condition, like there's cases where they can get it badly and end up in ICU and so on. But if I get it, I'm really, really vulnerable to it. And in some cases, I can actually lose my life to it. Or or else end up in a coma because of, as right. I said, uh, adrenal crisis. So have you been pretty much staying in then? Oh, pretty much, yeah. I've been staying indoors and um, self-isolating self, uh, inside. And whenever I'm going out, I go out for a walk with my mask and I make sure I wear my mask at all times, which I think personally should be made mandatory because I don't think you should be allowed to walk outside without a mask because... Since I've started this, I've worn a mask outside, outdoors at all times. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously your doctor uh, knows how vulnerable you are. And are you on a list to get a vaccine now? You're what, what age are you? You're quite young. You're in your 20s, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm 21 years old. 21 so. years old. Only a young yeah. lad. But you should be on, on the priority list. But you can't get on it, can you? See, I, I, at the end, I don't actually know. I have no clarity as to where I am on the rollout list because there's two cohorts which I could be on. One of them is cohort four, which is for people aged between 16 and 69 years old and are at very high risk of severe COVID-19 disease. And that's people that are severely immunocompromised. Or else I could be on cohort seven, which is for people aged between 16 to 64 and are, are has high risk of severe COVID-19. And, and nobody, and that, that adds to your stress, and of course stress doesn't help either. No, and stress for my condition, Addison's disease, is very, very dangerous. I, can, I have to avoid stressful situations at all times. And the really annoying fact about all of this is that we've been ignored time and time again by this government on rare diseases have been completely ignored. In England, as I said now, they've been classed as clinically uh, extremely vulnerable and just across the border now in the north of Ireland, a lot of people that I personally know have already have had their either their first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine or are completely vaccinated. Oh, the north, the north, Adigan, is putting us to shame. It's putting us to absolute shame with the way they're, they're, they're vaccinating people. It's, yeah. it's, it's ridiculous at this stage. And I suppose the same question as, as I asked Mark, like when you pick up the newspaper and, and you read about what happened at the Beacon, it's just really, really, it's really frustrating. I think it just shows, again, the capitalist privilege that exists in this country where it's like, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, and I'll get what I want. If I know a person that's high up, I'll get my vaccine. If I knew a person in that Beacon Hospital or that CEO personally, and I was close friends with that CEO, I bet you I wouldn't be on the radio here with you complaining that I haven't had a COVID vaccine because... All of those teachers and those staff in that private school that received that vaccine, 
it is absolutely shameful because there was vulnerable people in that Beacon Hospital that could have received that COVID vaccine. And and they have admitted, I mean, in fair, they, they have admitted that they went out of... There is a sequence now, there's a protocol now where they're supposed to, if you have spare vaccine at the end of the day, which is quite common, you're you're supposed to go through a number of different levels to see can anybody use that vaccine and and clearly and they they've said they've said at this stage that they didn't they didn't go through that sequence listen Attic, and I wish you well I hope it comes for you soon uh, and that you can get out and get on with your life um 21 years of age and again locked in pretty much for the last 12 months and it's when you see that happening do you know when you when you and then the thinking oh that'll never get of course it'll get out great work actually by that lad in the Irish Daily Mail I think it was that uh, young journalist who exposed that story. And it would appear, I say it would appear, that there are other stories like it um, that only waiting to break of spare vaccines at the end of the day. Going to friends and family. It's happening way too often. Way, way too often. 1857-15996. Daniela, dog mom or cat mom? I'm a dog mom. I have three French bulldogs. Wow, like Lady wow. Gaga. Yes. Yeah. Did you already yeah. get them like that? <laughs> 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 Do you mind me asking, how much would you pay for a puppy for one of them? Oh, anything between two and a half friends to five and a half. Wow, wow. Casey and Ross in the morning with Noel DC Cars Blackpool. Exclusively Skoda in the city. Find your next car online at noeldc.com. Open 24-7. Courts 96 FM. <laughs> I bet that fella says this message. I bet that fella that they're looking for in Dublin is probably making his way to Beacon to get his vaccine. Sure, nothing would surprise you anymore. We have a few theories on the turning left at Patrick Street. I will get it. I think you can actually turn both turn left and go over the bridge. That seems to be the, the consensus that is out there. Just on the quarantine and the fellas breaking away from quarantine over the weekend, how crazy it was. Does anybody think it's strange there was no description of the people who absconded? How are we supposed to avoid them or notify the authorities when we see them? There's something strange going on there. Also, I find it fascinating that people who work in the medical profession and who lived in Australia, of all places, are giving out now about quarantine. They have an even tougher regime there. Yeah, that's the family. They come back from Perth in Australia. They're all over the media complaining about the conditions at the Crown Plaza Hotel, but they've been in Perth and Perth has had one case in the last, I don't know, eight or nine months. One community-based case. And pretty much that's all down to a good quarantine regime. A much tougher quarantine regime, let me tell you, than we have here. And they're given out about the state of the Crown Plaza. Yeah. 1850 It's a world story that started kind of a week and a bit ago with just there's a boat stuck in the Suez Canal. And people went looking up a boat stuck in the Suez Canal. How did that happen? People were becoming overnight experts on the history and geography of the Suez Canal and looking at the story of the MV Ever Given, an enormous container ship. This thing is huge, jammed between one side and the other side of the Suez Canal. And a blocking, of course, blocking the canal up through Egypt 
and blocking world shipping, a major lane of world shipping for nearly a week. The good news is, and there's videos now all over the social media, that as of this morning, they've shifted it. Uh, They got it out from the side. They've got it floated. And I think they're waiting on the tide and it'll move on. There's a tidal change of about two, two and a half metres in that part of the canal. You see how we've all become so used to the geography and they'll be able to move it out. But it's caused a massive backlog. A prediction was made a number of years ago that this would happen. And it was made by, uh, by among other people, Michael Kingston, a maritime lawyer from West Cork. Michael, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good to talk to you again. Michael, just, I suppose, we're looking at the videos on social media. Is is it free? Is it gone? Um, well, my understanding is the same as yours this morning. Um, it's not gone yet. It's still aground by the bow. So, um, And also there were reports last night that there was actually um, some ingress of water into the bow section. So... Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens during the course of the day on, and on the, the later day's high tides. Give us some idea of the size of this thing. Well, I mean, it's um, 400 metres long. So you were just talking about Patrick Street. If you can multiply that by about, I suppose, how, how long is Patrick Street? Uh, it's a good 150 metres anyway, at least. So double that. Wow. Um, and, and then, again, another bit. I mean, it's massive. You're and, talking uh, about something around the size of Parky Cueve, if not bigger than that. Uh, much bigger than Parky Cueve. I mean, it's, it's, it would be about... Uh, Parky Cueve would be about probably um, 120 metres long or something. So, you know, effectively <sighs> almost four times Parky Cueve. And how did it get stuck, Michael? Well, this is the multi-million dollar question. Um um, it isn't entirely um, established yet whether it was mechanical failure, although there are confirm- reports confirming that there wasn't mechanical failure. So therefore, potentially, um, as with 80% of all maritime accidents, um, human error and potentially speed is critical, particularly in narrow canals and such a massive ship. Um, there's a thing called the Bernoulli effect. It's a bit like drag on an aeroplane. If you go at the wrong speed, it can have a catastrophic consequences. And on this particular part of the canal, um, it, it was a bend just before it. And if you don't take the right speed, it can it can have uh, serious consequences. And potentially that was the cause. But at, as things stand at the moment, we don't know. And what we do know is that we that that an incident occurred. And what should have been in place, as was um, as was indicated, was necessary for these massive ships back in 2013, wasn't in place. So the obvious um, that everyone can see is not one single crate has been removed from the ship to lighten the vessel. Mm. Twenty thousand. And again, if people want to look down Tivoli Dock at these huge forty-foot containers. 20,000 of those on top of it. And they couldn't lift them off. There wasn't, I would have thought that all along the Suez Canal, given its importance, there would have been loads and loads of cranes and you just put one into position or try, or, or do you know? There's, no. there's, there's one elephant in the room here and that is the fact that the ship is 57, the top crate is 57 metres above the water level. And, you know, which is an enormous um, height. And in 2013, following the sinking of the Cost Concordia in Italy, um, where 32 people died, 
um, and it cost the insurance industry 1.5 billion to remove the wreck. Lloyds of London, who I worked with, did a report. I was the legal advisor on the report in 2013. And two of the key findings in the report were, one, that the location of salvage equipment across the world is um, inadequate. And number two, that there is no equipment available for these mega ships. Um, and we advise that there should be a pool put in place and 10 cent charge per container and that um, the money would be there to have this equipment located at strategic mm. positions around the world because speed um, in in casualty situations is everything yeah. from turning a casualty situation into an utter disaster. And, and it's quite clear um, from for everyone to see that not one crate's been removed, which was the obvious way to lighten the vessel, yes. and that the equipment doesn't exist. Crikey, crikey. Tell us a bit about the importance of the Suez Canal, Michael. Again, it's something that we had to start looking through to, you know, to, to learn the history and geography. Why is it so important? Well, I mean, it saves um, thousands and thousands of miles going around South Africa, the Cape of Good Hope, and it was originally named, most most people will remember from school, Cape Fear, yes. because of the treacherous waters that, that are um, involved going in that direction. So not only do you have massive distance, we're talking um, 12 perhaps extra days, 5,500 miles, but also um, dangers. And, and equally, the same position is on the other side of the world, around Cape Horn, and that's why the Panama Canal is critical for going through the Pacific. And so basically those two canals are the key um, archeries um, of, of world trade and, and everything that we are, um, look. if we look around us right now, 80% of everything that we see is transported by sea. Um, and those arch archeries of, of the world trade are critical and, and, and shipping relies on scheduling um, and so this ship obviously with 20,000 crates on board is um, has got um, produce that is destined for Ireland in every every shape, manner or form that you can think of components for uh, manufacturing, you, na- you name it ingredients for the pharmaceutical industry toys um, all sorts of things, food and, and of course, it's caused a backup, and, and these ships operate on a round-the-world constant uh, basis, so that ship would also have been picking up in Rotterdam um, other freight for onward transportation and so on and so forth. So the whole, whole world has been affected by um, the backup of, of all these um, of all these crates. So instead of what we thought was just a ship, stuck in a canal, is actually a a major blockage in the entire global supply chain. Totally. Um, (sighs) You know, there's five and a half what the figure is today. Yesterday it was 340 ships backed up. You know, there's starvation in Syria because um, they've had to ration um, critical supplies were coming through the Suez Canal. Um, and that's just one humanitarian example of, of many around the world. You know, our comforts are on delay, but people are actually in a critical humanitarian um, situation um, um, because of because of these delays. And so, therefore, um, when we sought um, backing for this 
fund be put in place to have this equipment available back in 2013, we were told by the British government that it wasn't a societal issue. It was just a matter of a property issue for the insurance market and the, and, and the ship owners. And therefore, they, they didn't back the establishment of the fund to have this equipment in place by introducing a levy of 10 cent per, contain, per container. But they now know that it is a societal issue of massive proportions. And so now... Um, it's a forewarning that we need to get this equipment in place because the last thing we want is one of these ending up, for example, in the English Channel or on the uh, Irish coast. And we don't can't move these crates quickly and, and a casualty turns into a disaster. And, of course, we know enough about that yeah. through the MV altar in Ballycotton where yes. we couldn't deal with a small ship like that, which could probably fit into the bridge of, of this massive ship in the, in, in the Suez Canal. Oh my goodness, that now puts it into perspective, Michael, there in that one sentence, that the MV Alta would probably fit into part of the bridge. Good Lord. Well, I mean, that's a slight exaggeration. I, I imagine but, it is, but, but I know... But, but, but the, the, the Alta is, is a small ship. Um, we didn't deal with it in, in, a, in the manner that we should have with, with, um, with a proper response plan because we don't have a, a, um, a proper response plan in Ireland for casualty situations. And uh, uh, what was potentially um, a, a removable ship is now a total not a wreck sitting on the coast of, Bal- of, of Ballycotton, and that's an un- unacceptable situation. Yeah. And we have a total lack of preparedness for these sort of issues um, in Ireland. We, a lot of us will remember the Kowloon Bridge yes. off West Cork in 1986 that, yes. that um, completely polluted all our beaches and effectively we had no way of dealing with a stricken ship and she ended up on on our shoreline and we still don't and it's something that we need to deal with urgently in Ireland. So this issue in the Suez Canal is very much an issue for Irish society as well. Because these things come here. They're not just in some other strange part of the world. They come here. Michael, thank you very much for that. Michael Kingston, a maritime lawyer, of course, uh, from West Cork, from Goline. Uh, it, it, the size of it. This, I mean, take a look at Parky Cueve and think longer and wider. Actually, there's a new app. I don't. It's not an app. It's just something someone has managed to do. I, I, I found a picture on my phone this morning of, and I snapped it. It's of the Ever Given in the Lock. I'll, I'll tweet it there in a minute when I have a chance. The ever given in the lock. <laughs> I'm not joking you. And someone has now come up with... But do you remember weeks ago there when Bernie Sanders turned up at the inauguration of President Biden and that picture of Bernie Sanders was being put into everyone's front room and put into meetings and put... Yeah, they've done something similar with this now where they've taken a picture of the ever given and they've managed to put it into anywhere you want in the world and there's a brilliant photograph which I will tweet in a while of the of the the ever given sitting in the lock <laughs> it's brilliant but it's a very serious story 1850-715-996 Simon Murdoch and the best music mix weekdays from midday on Cork's 96FM Monday afternoon at work working from home or in the car I've got the tunes everything that's happening in Cork and the bit of crack on the radio you need to help you through the day see you from midday on Cork's 96FM 
This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, just on vaccines, there's people attending hospitals, says this message, for kidney dialysis who've not received a vaccine yet due to their age, 65 and over. Other dialysis patients have received round one of the vaccine, even though they're within the same group. There's just confusion abounding with regard to this blasted vaccine program. And they are putting us to shame in the North. They really are. Like on the week in politics, says this caller, Arlene Foster offered the Republic COVID vaccines. On the same programme, Catherine Martin of the Green Party said she knew nothing about it. Any normal person should have said, well, we'll pursue this kind offer immediately and we're most grateful. Instead, we got a lukewarm, disinterested, Arisha will take it if you really want to give it to us. This is how the government is losing the room. Not through lockdowns or five kilometres or hairdressers or builders. We don't know about that, whether they're safe or not with this new variant. What we all know is a vaccine is really the only way out and the government is disinterested and bored by conversation about it and behaves like it's supporting a football club, cheering on some vaccines from some places, whereas other vaccines from other places can do no right. Yeah, there was a great story in the Sunday Times yesterday where apparently Britain is prepared to give us as many as three point something million doses of vaccine. Are we interested? We don't seem too bothered, really. The North are putting us to shame, to absolute shame, with the way they're handling their vaccine rollout. 1850-715-996. One of Cork's best-known animal charities, and I'm reading here from Cork Bio, has issued an urgent appeal for help from the public. What they want you to do is buy some pet food. Support them through pet food. The charity is called St. Vincent de Paul's which, as the name suggests, provides food for pets who, whose owners maybe can't afford it or indeed who don't have any owners. Strays, Susie Jones, good morning. Hi, PJ, how are you? Good. Tell us a little um, bit about St. Vincent de Paul's. I will, of course. Can I just clarify uh, there, first of all, we're actually not a charity. We're a voluntary organisation. Okay. It's just a small bit different from a charity, but we still do the, the good work that, okay. that charities do. Um Basically, we were set up about six years ago, just the small kind of little setup where we thought we could try and help rescues in whatever way we could, but we couldn't foster or adopt. So this just overnight, St. Vincent de Paul's was born and it just ballooned. It's a great name. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's, it's catchy and it kind of works. <laughs> now, obviously, we're not affiliated in any way of with course, St. Vincent yeah. de Paul. Yeah. And if we could do a fraction of their work, you know, yeah, just a nice quirky name and yeah. it causes a second glance. But and what you do is you, you literally just help with food. Exactly. Like it helps to kind of um take the pressure off the rescues then as well financially so they can concentrate on vet care, you know, and things like that instead of having to worry about food bills. And then over like I think it's about two years ago we started getting messages from members of the public saying, oh, there's people on the streets with their dogs. Can you help them? And we started to help them as well. And we actually provided food to Penny Dinners as well so they can distribute food out to families that, that have pets, you know, that, just, that are struggling. Yeah. But we but ran out of food. You're out of, you're out of food. So you <laughs> want are. people to basically supply a few little bits of food, bags of food, tins of food, whatever, to you. 
exactly. It would be amazing. Even, like, I always say to people, like, even one tin of food helps, you know, like, the rescues can, or even families, like, you can, like, some dogs, like, could a tin of food could last two to three days, depending on the size of the dog. Yeah. You know, even the cats. And I always say to people as well, like, Lidl and Aldi have brilliant brands, like, and great deals. Mm. you know on food and like for five euros you can get nearly like eight ten tins of food or mm. even three bags of food and a hungry dog or cat will eat anything at the end of the day you know that's true that's true yeah and um, it's, we, it's just like as you know like with the pandemic people are just struggling all over and it's just we're, it's our it's our only way we can help and yeah. we ran out of food there a few weeks ago and volunteers are buying it out of their own pocket okay. you know to try and help so we did an appeal on Friday and it's erupted. <laughs> well, you have a number of collection points, and I plan to read them. I, I plan to oh, read them brilliant. out. Thank uh, you. People can, and it's literally just drop, just drop off whatever you, whatever you can bring. Could exactly. be one tin, or could be a huge bag, whatever. We are delighted with even just one tin. If anybody can donate, it's every little helps. All right, okay, we'll do that. I'll read the list now. If anyone wants to help out, and it's to feed the dogs and cats of people who can't afford to feed them themselves or who are just short. Of, of money to buy uh, pet food and I guess there's probably some strays going around that, that, that you'll help too Susie, thanks very much Susie Johnson's in Vincent de Paul's a voluntary organisation and what they're trying to do at the moment is gather some pet food so if it is a thing whether you have a dog or not or a cat or not or whether you love an, whether, whether you've ever had an animal I think it's a lovely idea uh, to just help out so there's a, a list here which I'll read uh, the spa in Douglas, inside there in the Woolen Mills. Pets Plus in Cove. Pets Plus at the North Point in Blackpool. The Glanmire Pet Shop. Morgan's Daybreak Shop in Toker. The McCroom Pet Shop. Julie Curtin's Dog Grooming and Accessories in Churchfield. And Pet Paradise in Waterford. And the Pet Store and Doggy Daycare in Waterford. They will take anything. One tin, one bag, one little pouch or whatever else you want to give. Just bring it along. I'm thinking here in the city, you go to Douglas or to Blackpool or to Toker, and just drop off whatever you can. 1850 I've got some comments held over on various bits and pieces. I'll try to get them before we finish. People still arguing about that turn-off at the bottom of, at the top of Patrick Street there. Can you actually turn both left onto Levitt's Quay or go straight over the bridge? Most people seem to think you can do both that the one to the Lavitz Key is just a filter and that when you have clear access through that you can actually go over Patrick's Bridge. That seems to be the consensus. I'm just saying. Don't blame me. 1850 A woman has been using her time cocooning to put together hampers for the homeless in the hope she can still make a positive impact on the outside world. Still trying to do something for her fellow man at the age of 92. Bina O'Reardon, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Delighted to hear Very from nice you. Very nice to see you. Could, yeah, yeah. Could, could you maybe get a bit closer to your phone, Bina, if that would be possible? Yeah. No that, oh, that's much better. Yeah. Um, first of all, can I ask, have you had your vaccine yet? Uh, thanks be to God, I have. The second one got on Thursday. Brilliant. So yeah. you've had your two doses. I have, thank you. Fantastic. Now, before that, and in a couple of weeks' time, hopefully you'll be able to go out and about and start, you know. But you decided to, to pass the time while you were cocooning. What did you do? Well, I just, my family, were doing this on a usual basis, right? 
you know, every week, almost every week, they've been making up purses for for, for the homeless. Right. And I have been just helping out, you know, what, doing what my bit. Do? Well, we have to make sandwiches and get them, get drinks for them and uh, food bags. You know, we call them, they call them food bags. Mm-hmm. Make up the food bags, you know. So, and uh, deliver them, get it, or get them delivered, right. you know. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's it's very hard, but it's also very rewarding. Yeah. You yeah. know, every, um, every person is entitled to food and uh, a bit of nourishment. Yeah. And God help us, we're not all that lucky. Some people just can't, you know. There yeah. is so much homeless now. I, you know, I don't think there was ever any anything like that long ago. Yeah. You know, everybody had a kind of enough to treat and a home to some place to lie down. But the world is very queer now. Yes. And then on on the Mondays, on the Mondays, my daughter Nora and her sister Teresa and daughter her. My granddaughter, Teresa's daughter, mm. uh, Michelle, they gather. That we have wonderful volunteers that keep us keep us going almost constantly. Yeah. With and wonderful kind shops in Antwerp and all around, and who they help out with with all the, the a lot of the food. Yeah. We have very kind donors donators right. The local oh. shops are wonderful in Cantor. Yeah. And you wonder how anybody would want to go outside it, you know, for yeah. anything. Yeah. But um, we, it's very rewarding when you have them all done. And Hazel, her name is Hazel, and her volunteers. The, the street called, angels. The street angels, that's yeah. right. And they, they all do their best. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very rewarding when you have mm-hmm. it done. You 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 remember being a little girl and yourself and your own mom helping yeah. the homeless. Oh yeah, we. I mean, there was quite quite a lot. Uh, but they were all walking, you know, on the roads, walking the road, and I guarantee you, they had no place to sleep because they were constantly going around the same on the in the same direction. Mm. And I don't think my mother or father that they ever knew. You know, where they slept except in farmers' gardens at night, you know? Yes. For a bit. And when they called the door, I guarantee you, I don't think there was a house in the place that would ever let them go without giving them uh, something to eat. Yeah. And a bit of nour- nourishment and clothes. And uh, I can remember well one mother, one woman, and she was, she constantly called to us. And my mother would know her straight away, and she hardly ever spoke. And she, I remember distinctly one time, she came in, and when we opened it, when Mum opened the door, she was dripping with everything she had on was drowned. She only had a light old jacket, and you know, she my mother brought it in, yeah. and she found clothes for her anyway. Where she found them from, I don't know, but she did find close to put on her and she gave her nourishment yeah. and she didn't let her go till she was quite alright in her opinion and yeah. well suited for the weather 
you had a great you had a great teacher by now in your mum. I probably had a great teacher, right? Yeah, and my dad was also very good. He'd yeah. never do anybody without. And if anyone ever came to the door and we having a bit of dinner or anything, he'd always say, "Come in and sit down and take a bite." Yeah. That's for his users here. It was a different country, wasn't oh, it? Oh, it was a different world. Yeah. It was a completely different world. Mum and Dad used to go to town on a week on a Saturday on the Pony and Cap. We only had the Pony and Cap. And they'd make for the, the shops in the cantor to do a bit of shopping. And we, the doors, the doors, our doors were always open. We never had a lock in them. You know, people were all for trusting. And they, they were never let down. Yeah. They always trusted everyone. Yeah. Do you know yeah. It was it was great, and you could leave a child out, or send a child for a loaf of bread or whatever you wanted, and you could be guaranteed that they'd come home straight and come home with what they were sent for, yes. and without a bother on the road, and yeah. they'd have to do it walking. You know, she'd always have left two of them maybe go together, but yeah. that was only because they be better off with two together. And there was no and there was no mobile phones or no there phones. No, nothing. There was no no or nothing. No, or nothing. There'd yeah. be sometimes the kids would be crossing the street from where we lived, or crossing the fields to where the shop they cut. <laughs> They'd cross the fields come, to get in quicker <laughs> into town. Come but here then, to me. I hear that you are, and I can tell you're full of stories. Are you writing a book as well? <laughs> yeah, and I am. I am in the <laughs> in the midst of it. All right, but uh, my daughter is putting them together. Um, I, my sight isn't getting that great. Yeah, but you're just telling uh, your stories and having them written yeah, down for you. things that I can remember. I, you know, I can remember things from my very small childhood, like that I wouldn't even remember last week. But <laughs> 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 they were, certainly were different times, I tell you. Very different times, very yeah, different. They were indeed. Yeah. Do you know now when... You've got your you had you've had your your two doses and you're you'll be safe going and safe now in a couple of weeks yeah. and when you're yeah. al- when you're allowed to go out and around yeah. again that I think so you've a lot of travelling you want to do you've lots of parts of Ireland you want to see have you Yeah, I would like to get around Ireland. There is this is a wonderful country, you know. Like I love watching those programs on television where the cameras are going all over the, all over the country and Creedence. Travels, you know. Army old pal John, great program. John Green, great yeah. program. And if he take, uh, I was looking at places in Butterbent and castles and maybe I didn't even know they existed. And you know, you would love to see all those places. Yeah. yeah. Because I don't know why people go abroad. <laughs> Ireland is a lovely country. And I think you really want to go to the beach soon. Yes, I do. I would love, I always love going to the beach. No, not particularly going, but just going for a pedal. Yeah, but it's, it, it is lovely. There the sand, the sand and the sea water around your toes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Listen, I have no doubt, but that you will get to the sea very soon. You're you're a character and a half, and you're doing super work on behalf of the Street Angels. And I just wanted to have a chat with you. And thank you very much. It is very kind of you. I know. Delighted. And thank you. Th- thank you for yeah. being with us. Bye now. Bye bye, and thank you very much. Thanks very much. That's 92-year-old Baina O'Reardon.
still making up parcels for the homeless in the street angels. She has her two doses of vaccine and she can't wait to get out on a tear around the country, down to the beach. Good on her. Good on her. Don't you just love those people? 92, she's raring for, raring for road. She is. Raring for road. 1850-715-996. I think if I've half my, if I've half my, half her energy. Yeah, I know, I know. Isn't she great? Where are we going? Oh, yes, on the vaccines for the vulnerable. Hi, PJ. Our politicians are a disgrace the way they treat the sick and the vulnerable. We have a sister who has to have 24-hour oxygen. She has major problems with her lungs and also has heart problems. My brother and sister-in-law care for her. It's 12 months since she was outside the house except for hospital appointments. She's in her 40s. Myself and my other sister all help. But it's so hard waiting to see when she'll get her vaccination. I'm heading to her doctors now to collect a prescription and I'll ask again and again I'll be told we're not sure as there's a lot of people just like her. That's the awful thing. Thanks for highlighting it this morning. Great show. Thank you. Another another message says we're, we're only short now of Stephen Donnelly blaming the Suez Canal blockage for the slow rollout of the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. The government will make a statement later. Here's another one. I'm sure the tongue is very much, much in the cheek, but you know, nothing would surprise me at this stage that the vaccine they ordered from Wish <laughs> is on the container show. Oh, do mind? Listen, the knickers you ordered from Wish, forget about them. Forget about them, I'd say. Right, very quickly. 1850-715-996. New show on telly this week. RT2 Monday nights. Bernard's Working Comics, where Bernard O'Shea is teaching people to be comedians. Fiona Walsh works down at the Photo Wildlife Park. Hi, Fiona. Hi, PJ. How are you? Good, good. How did you get involved in this show? Um, yeah, just Bernard came to the park and was working with a few of us um, and working with the animals and seeing the kind of job we did. And I suppose he asked a few people, one being myself, would I be interested in doing stand-up? So it kind of went from there then. And was it something that you thought about previously? Um, I suppose I never thought I'd have the opportunity. Um, when I was younger, definitely, I was, um, I suppose I would be confident to do things like that. Um, you know, I, I suppose I kind of like to make my friends laugh and things like that. But yeah. now, no, I, I was kind of surprised he asked me, but flattered at the same time, I suppose. Maybe yeah. he saw some potential or something, I don't know. Well, well but, you work uh, with the primates down there, so the monkeys and the gibbons and, and the lemurs and these fellows with the long tails that jump up and down the trees. So there's plenty to look at and maybe turn into material. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose I got a bit from that, all right. And then I just based off my own kind of, I suppose, I don't know, personal life or something that, you know, people can relate to everyday things. So, yeah, um, there's always a bit of entertainment down here in the park. Um, so, yeah, I suppose there was plenty to go by. Yeah. And and so you, what is it, Bernard takes you and prepares you for your own stand-up set? Yeah, so, um, yeah, he just kind of, I suppose he did some workshops with us and um, it kind of tapped in then to kind of the creative mind. Um, things didn't make sense really, but I could see where he was going then because it kind of made you think of things. He'd say one word and then you'd describe something and then that would kind of open up something. And yeah. I suppose he got to know our personalities and um, I suppose our strengths. And yeah, so he kind of let us kind of come up with our own ideas. I suppose it'd be more natural then and You'd be confident to, you know, that you're not doing off a script, you're doing off your own thoughts. Right. And then he kind of advised, um, I suppose, 
what to say, you know, if we were just having a bit of trouble with anything. And so, yeah, he did a few calls and visits and um, did a bit of practice with him. But yeah. um, we look forward. Yeah. We will look forward to seeing it. It's on RT two tonight, I think, and at nine thirty-five. Are you nervous? Yeah. Have Have you seen uh, it? Have you seen it yet? No, I haven't seen it. So I was only talking to Liam earlier because we were saying it'd be nice if we saw it. So we'd be a bit prepared for it. But um, I think he did well and I think I'm kind of proud of myself as well. So yeah. I just hope it comes across. Oh yeah, your, your, your buddy Liam McConville uh, also from yeah. Forta is in, is in it too. Well look, good, good luck. And just even doing it is, is a huge achievement. So uh, we look forward to watching that. Fiona, good, good luck with that. Fiona Walsh, uh, working at Photo Wildlife Park. She's part, and along with her colleague Liam McConville, part of uh, Bernard's Working Comics, Bernard O'Shea's latest show, which is on tonight. 1850-715-996. There's loads of stuff with regard to the uh, vaccines and we still don't know for sure. Again, they're still arguing about the bridge. No, you can't. That's a turn left. Look at the arrows on the floor at the junction. Yes. And Jim wants to know, could we please mention that in all this time of trouble and strife, people over the weekend raised €5 million Euro between Daffodil Day and Alzheimer's support. We're not such a bad place after all. And that, you know is a good way as any to finish with it, Jim. A little bit of positivity. Thank you. The programme today edited by Terry Brennan, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. And we'll see you tomorrow just after nine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.